A friend of mine called Michelle Morrison wrote these words on Thursday as a lead-in to her daily time of reflection, which she shares with others. It's almost too painful to listen to the news. Why do I do it? The reports from Afghanistan are appalling. Women on the run as the Taliban fighters sweep in. Tales from East Jerusalem, where Palestinian families are being forced to dare tear down their houses with their bare hands and move on. The accounts of wildfires burning in large swathes of one of the coldest areas on Earth, Siberia, reveal the terrible damage we humans are causing our environment. The news is so bleak, it should bring me to my knees, and as I join my prayers with the millions of others around the world, we partner with God to turn these da disasters round. May I pray in the Spirit throughout this day, confident that my prayers don't hit a glass ceiling, but penetrate to the halls and throne of the Almighty God, whose promise is to answer the cries of our hearts. Michelle's words struck a chord with me as I sat with the reading from 1 Kings 21 earlier in the week. In the story of Ahab and Naboth, we read of greed, corrupt power, maliciousness, deceit and murder. What's more, this passage shows how cheap Ahab and Jezebel thought life to be. Naboth might not be the best-known character in scripture, but his life was of worth, as each life is, and perhaps his story has something to say to us. I want to just outline the story briefly again so that we can perhaps visualise what happened a bit more clearly. Naboth had a vineyard in the city of Jezreel, which sat in a beautiful fertile valley. Naboth's vineyard was close to the palace of King Ahab. Ahab wanted it. He offered Naboth another piece of land. He offered money. But Naboth said, no, I'm not going to sell my inheritance. Now, his response was valid and was backed up by Jewish law, which said that in the final analysis, the people didn't own the land. The whole land of Israel belonged to God. And those who lived and worked in the land were essentially God's tenants, not owner-occupiers. However, if someone did sell their land out of dire emergency, it would revert back to the original family at the time of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years. Oh, and something else we should be aware of. The king had no right to take it from him. Ezekiel 46.18 says the prince must not take any of the people's inheritance, evicting them from their property. He is to provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property so that none of my people will be displaced from his own property. So Naboth's no is not just out of sentiment or because he was trying to push up the price, but because he felt he was honouring God in retaining his family land, given in sacred trust. Ahab's wife, Jezebel, couldn't get her head round the fact that her husband didn't just take the land. He was king after all, and she knew how kings operated. After all, she had married into this royal family from another royal family. Her father was king of Tyre, but then 
he had a very different royal style, unlike the kings of Israel who at least in theory acknowledged the ultimate sovereignty of God in the land, the king of Tyre was a good old-fashioned despot. If he wanted a piece of land, he just took it. Now, because Ahab didn't get what he wanted, he sulked. And as he sulked, his wife Jezebel plotted as to how she could get Naboth's vineyard for her husband. And she thought the easiest way was to dispose of Naboth. But it was an intricate plan, so it would look as if Naboth brought the whole thing on himself. Jezebel sent letters to the town elders of Jezreel in her husband's name to proclaim a day of fasting, at the end of which there would be a banquet. And she told them to have Naboth seated in a prominent place, a place of honour but also to seat two unscrupulous men opposite him and have them bring a charge against him, saying that he had cursed God and the king, and on the basis of the accusations of blasphemy and treason, take him out and stone him. And, trumped up charges though they were, Jezebel must have had some knowledge of how these things worked, because such accusations had to have two witnesses to give them any credence. The city officials, either to curry Ahab's favour or to avoid Jezebel's wrath, carry out Jezebel's plot and murder Naboth. They are all complicit in the crime. Now before we rush on, think for a moment about Naboth. One moment a guest of honour, then out of nowhere an accusation that would lead to his death. Any initial excitement at being seated in the place of honour would have quickly given way to confusion and then horror as he realised that he could do nothing to stop this railroading. So the false witnesses brought their false accusations and an innocent man is stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth was dead, she told Ahab to take possession of the vineyard, which had apparently now become crown property. Now, just in case you wondered, as I did, if Naboth had any family to pass his land on to, he did. He had sons, and it appears that their blood was spilled too, just to clear the way. We're told as much in 2 Kings 9 when Naboth's story is briefly recounted when Ahab's family line comes to an end, as had been foretold by the Lord's prophet Elijah. Because as you'll remember, Ahab getting hold of the land he wanted was not the end of the story. Once again, Elijah, the prophet of God, enters the scene and tells Ahab that he's been disobedient and has turned his back on the Lord God of Israel and that he and Jezebel and their descendants will suffer horribly because of their wickedness. When we read the story of Ahab's reign, the verdict of scripture on Ahab is damning. We are told he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So all in all, Ahab is not an example to follow. Yet the lessons he has for us can be of worth if basically we look at it through the lens of don't do what he did. 
The whole story of Ahab shows him to have been careless of the promises he had made to God. He had no real regard for the lives of others. He openly opposed and despised the Lord's prophets. He was selfish and sullen. He was cruel, morally weak. He liked to display his wealth. We're told the palace he built was adorned with ivory. And Ahab and his wife corrupted those around them. And we may well say, well, that's not us, that's not me. But the story of Ahab and Naboth's vineyards rings true because it's a story which has been played out time after time throughout history as those with power take advantage of those without. All of us can think of examples of the abuse of power, whether by politicians, government officials, public servants, big businesses, armies, or even Joe Bloggs, those who, in Jesus' words, simply lord it over others, exert their power over others. And again, we might say, but it's not us, it's not me. But perhaps we need to challenge ourselves about that. Because whether we are aware of it or not, we have power over others by virtue of the fact that we have been born here or live here in the West. And sometimes we abuse that power, probably without even being aware of it, as we demand cheap clothes bought in from countries where the powerless are paid a pittance for the long hours they work as we expect year-round produce on our supermarket shelves bought from farmers who are not getting a fair deal for their produce, as we put our desires and comfort above others' basic needs, as we abuse the planet for, say, the convenience of water in a plastic bottle. And the way to address these things is to perhaps research who we buy our clothes from, consider where they're made, the working conditions, the hours of work, what the workers are paid. Perhaps we look more carefully for those products which are fair trade or locally sourced. Perhaps we think again about what we can recycle, reuse or repurpose. Perhaps it's about each of these kinds of situations and more, as well as those situations that we hear reported, those things that Michelle highlighted. And that our response should be like Elijah as we seek to speak truth to power. Now, speaking truth to power isn't always about the kind of major life-threatening confrontations that Elijah was often in. But we can use the power of our voice to put a stop to injustice. We might be ignored, we might feel that we will all we say will fall on deaf ears, but then again, if we are adding our voice to the voices of others, seeds of change just might take root. And if we say or do nothing or just go along with things, do we not become complicit? Now, I should say something on the positive side about Ahab. When he heard what Elijah had to say, he did repent. He turned back to God for a while anyway. But eventually he went his own way and ultimately he died on the battlefield and his blood was indeed licked by dogs as foretold by Elijah. And his memorial remains. He did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. I've thought a lot about that, 
What a damning verdict on a life. The thing is, it all comes down to the choices we make in life and the way we use the power and influence we have with others. The only question is, will we make our choices and use our power and influence for evil or for good? Will we choose to follow the path God has laid out for us, to work with him to make this world a better place? Or do we make our own path and work alone to make sure that we're okay, irrespective of those we might hurt along the way? The choice is always ours, but the thing to remember is the verdict on our life isn't just made by our family, friends and community. Ultimately, it's made by God. And so we close with our New Testament reading from Galatians chapter 6, this time taken from the message. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life.